so this is the conservative culture corner for the week. Uh, and this week, uh, you know, as we sit with our uh, small glasses of tea with tea plates uh, and our, 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 our little square cut sandwiches, uh, we're going to discuss the emotionally moving and, you know, politically powerful and poignant artwork of a, a one Mr. John McNaughton. Uh, and if you guys haven't seen this, so I mean, um, I'm sure we can throw some of these images up. Uh, Carl, you're not allowed to link to his website. I've already given his website enough clicks, uh, just doing research for the show. <laughs> and you're not, you can link to this Esquire article that I'm pulling a lot of this stuff from. Uh, Mr. McNaughton okay, is a yeah. conservative, if you don't know, Mr. McNaughton is a conservative um, artist and he enjoys painting... Uh, white Jesus, and uh, he likes painting Trump, and so he came out with a, a painting this week. Um, he likes painting white Jesus. <laughs> it's it's important to me that he likes painting white Jesus because he paints white Jesus and Trump together a lot, and it's just fun to see. Like, uh, anyway. Uh, but anyway, he, he put out a oh, painting. you got to have your own type of Jesus that can get into the country club. Yeah. Um, but he, he put out a painting yeah, of... absolutely. $69. <laughs> he put out a painting nice. of uh, President Trump. He's standing on a football field, which is as close to physical exercise as he can get without uh, blowing up his heart. Um, he is in a football stadium, there's people all around, and he's got a tattered, torn-up American flag, and he's got a little blue rag, and he's clutching the flag to his chest, and he's just rubbing it with this thing, which, like, number one, if you're trying to clean a flag, not how you do it, but uh, it's a pretty good yeah, little piece of art. So I've got a couple bits here uh, that I feel uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read to you. Uh, number one, um, I want to read the product description from Mr. McNaughton's website. And again, uh, just trust us. I mean, if you need to go verify that we're telling the truth, you know, you can go to McNaughton's website. But uh, I'm just saying, don't give him clicks if you can avoid it. I feel pretty bad that I'm I've given him so ad revenue. Right now, holy <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty shit. bad. You can get lost. <laughs> but uh, so here's your product description. So there's, 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 there's a tribute to Billy Graham and Reagan. Yes, and, yes. Uh, this on Trump trying to teach a man to fish. Which can we turn that into a reality show, please? Trump trying to teach some no fishing apprentice. <laughs> Right. Yeah, like Trump oh has ever God. done anything that has required him to do anything Sorry. his whole life. Uh, so here's here's the product description, and uh, you guys are going to enjoy this. <clears throat> I painted President Trump picking up a shredded and trampled flag off the football field. He holds a wet cloth in his right hand as he attempts to clean it. I respect America. I respect the flag, the anthem, and the president. Because he doesn't back down to those who do not. When the NFL players decide to kneel as the anthem was given, I felt sick. The flag represents the vast number of Americans who have sacrificed their lives for our nation. It is about their blood and the sacrifice of many thousands. Which is like not even... Uh, shut up, Adam. Don't. It's this is God bless. If we do not respect the flag Dude, enough, read it. Read it. <laughs> if we do not respect the flag enough to fight for what it stands for—liberty, justice, and strength, 
then we will be the weakest generation. <laughs> the way Trump called out the NFL for not supporting the standing of the national anthem was an example of how a president should lead with courage to say and do the right thing, regardless of the reaction of others. That's all one <laughs> sentence, guys. I just noticed that. That last, it's like, it's not a sentence. It's just, oh, shit, that is one sentence. Yeah, it, it, it is impressive. Uh, well, what is the standing of the national anthem? What does that mean? Like, are they, like, standing it up? I don't understand. The, not you, the Trump supports them standing, so he's off to the side clapping while they're <laughs> that's, that's his next painting. I'm going to commission it. Uh, well, I'm also I'm really like this painting confuses because it looks more like he's just having a heart attack and he's <laughs> holding a crappy flag while he does it. His expression kind of he just shit his pants a little. Oh, he's like, no. oh no, Lassie, Lassie, oh, no. Lassie, scroll to the bottom of the Esquire article and see what they think his expression looks like. Because they're pretty sure it's uh, the exact same expression from the robot on Queen's News of the World. Yeah, News of the World. <laughs> they have them side by side, and they're identical. Um, so I want to I want to say a couple I just, things. I just really love the idea that, like, yeah. Uh, so, like, one, he respects the flag and the anthem, which, like, no qualifiers on them. He just respects those symbols because someone made them at one point, and that makes them important. And the president. But then he has to actually give a qualifier to the president because he didn't like Obama. Only this president. Because he doesn't back down to those who do not. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, well, right, right, right. that, like, again, terribly written sentence. But also, like, I love that you have to qualify it because Obama exists. Um, and then... <laughs> The, Every time this is said, death to America, Obama said we have to be nice, so maybe like a headache for America, you know, <laughs> to, to, to even split there. So, and then he says that, that, that what the flag stands See, for I, is liberty, justice, and strength? Yeah, that last one, like, why do we have to be, like, <laughs> do we, uh, well, the swag actually stands for well, the continued... You know that a bodybuilder? Oh, oh Yeah. How does that transition to us being the weakest generation? Like, can um, we, can we get well, because to- these these fairies in California, they want to burn the flag. Because war and you know the irony is when you yeah. see a flag that's tattered and dirty like that, you are supposed to burn it. Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed yeah, to rub it with a wet cloth. <laughs> yeah, flag code. Hello, I don't. Um, Not that that even matters, but of course we we are on the on the nationalism scale. America has to be uh, where we well by people to stand the flag. We're showing strength against all those authoritarian <laughs> force their people and then salute a different. One. <laughs> I, I I love on one hand that like this narrative. Yeah, fuck that. Like, I mean completely like disregards the fact that like one protests are things that happen in the U S all the time Two, there are people who are allowed to protest and like three, the thing they're protesting, i.e. police violence is uh, like pretty, you know, large and bad. Uh, but before we move on to the show for the week, uh, actually I, 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 one more thing on this before we end our conservative culture corner. And I want you guys to know that all of those C's are K's <laughs> here. Uh, but uh, I actually uh, they are um, in conservative culture corner. <laughs> whatever. I don't have. I'm a, I'm allowed. Um, uh, but but Mr. Sean Hannity, our good friend, friend of the show, 
uh, actually, he made, he actually added Carl on Twitter and he said, uh, here's, here's what, here's what uh, Mr. Sha- Mr. Sean Hannity had to say to, to our friend Carl. Uh, the left, the quote unquote left loves art and especially taxpayer funded art that is quote unquote provocative. Let's get their reaction to this with a link to uh, you know, this, <laughs> this new painting. Uh, but yeah, nothing, so so so. Nothing I love more than getting those taxpayer dollars to like in a jar. <laughs> oh man! So as I, as I live, I'm very upset at seeing the flag respected in art. <laughs> yeah, it's not like we don't have I'm like really, ceremonies I'm really, like, or anything. Waiting for. Oh man, our lag is awful I, today. I, I'm, I'm gonna, waiting for yeah. like uh, for Trump to actually. I, we have a sec. He has a second picking up uh, of, of him grabbing Mueller like magnificent space, and I'm really <laughs> waiting for him to take that approach. Oh yeah, that one's title is "Expose the Truth," and like just he can do it. <laughs> it's just good. It's really good. <laughs> and. All right, I, I'm, I'm just trying to conceive of, because on one hand, we have the respect the flag. On the other, we have exposed Mueller. And then I, I do want to take a second to teach a man how to fish once again, because I did read the description for this. And, and, and it's a man to fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. But... Hey, Parker. <laughs> I, you- we, we have this little cognitive dissonance discussion. Uh, did you notice what books That's what uh, Trump University does did teaches you no- men to fish? Uh, Parker, <laughs> did you notice what books uh, he had beside him um, in that teach a man to yeah, fish no. painting? He said, "Exactly." He said, <laughs> "President Trump sitting next to a young college student. His pack is beside him, and his social and justice warrior books." Get aside. There's a book called Justice Warrior, and I do want to read it. At the very least, see the table of contents slash index. He looks at Trump's proposal and looks at the different bait he can use to catch his fish. I love how the dichotomy is between like get a college education or learn how to fish. Uh, <laughs> useful. Well, and then you have two sentences of like <laughs> you have the Trump offer poll each of us has a freedom to choose our own destiny like yeah i love the idea that that's why you got some like fancy special forces jerk off book <laughs> from suburban dads all right well i think that's a i think that's enough of our tea time uh culture corner today uh the next marvel the next marvel will be coming out i think you guys ready to get on the show? <laughs> Many months has come and gone since I wandered from my home In those Oklahoma hills where I was born Many a page of life has turned, many a lesson I have learned Well, I feel like in those hills I still belong Way down yonder in the Indian nation Ride my pony on the reservation In those Oklahoma hills where I was born Now way down yonder in the Indian nation The cowboy's life is my occupation In those Oklahoma hills where I was born 
I'm Adam Burnett, and this week we've got a full Red Star with Parker Nelson, Stephen Lastman, and Carl Roberts on the show. And this is Red Star Over Oklahoma. We are a small political podcast, po- political and news podcast broadcasting about left Oklahoma. Uh, we want to take a moment to remember the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre in Greenwood that occurred last week, May, 20, May 31st, 97 years ago, but uh, we're going to talk more about that later in the show. I also wanted to tell everyone thanks for listening and add that we are looking to do more interviews coming into the election season. Uh, we're working on a few right now. We've got a few leads. Uh, but if there's anyone you would like us to talk to or you think would like to talk to us, uh, including the Oklahoma editorial board, uh, feel free to give us some suggestions. Finally, happy Pride Month, everybody. Uh, I can go out to Tulsa Pride yesterday. I wanted to, but I was uh, doing stuff with the fam. Um, the show, just like all of us individually, is entirely supportive of LGBTQIA plus people. Uh, we also want to give a great movie tip for June. Uh, this is a movie, actually, uh, Carl had to watch this for class uh, back in undergrad, and, and he and I watched it together, and comes very highly recommended, but it's called Pride. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah uh, Carl and I were firefighters we might get a first hand medal for that (laughs) who needed health insurance and so we defrauded the government Uh, but our actual movie tip for June uh, is a movie called Pride uh, it's a British movie. That... <laughs> it is a British movie that came out in 2014. Uh, it's about London gay rights activists working with striking minors to protest Margaret Thatcher's government. Uh, it's a great movie on its own, as well as a wonderful exploration of how solidarity works in actions, and it'll be linked in the Reddit post. Uh, anyway, uh, on to the show. This week we're going to be talking about. Uh, well, opioids seem to be addictive, and Purdue Pharmaceutical doesn't give a shit. Uh, a little update on Hurricane Maria. Uh, we're going to talk uh, in Oklahoma news about the 46th blue wave, uh, and we're going to get some some discussion about how uh, how the blue wave is going to occur in Oklahoma. And then we're going to um, discuss the uh, race massacre that occurred in Tulsa 97 years ago before moving on to the conservative reading list, of course, socialist events for the week. Um, but anyway, we're just going to jump right in, and uh, first thing up is the Purdue Pharmaceutical story. And so this one is, um, I, I think it's fun because um, on like one hand, uh, I, I, th- I think especially as leftists who are uh, for universal health care, we get hit with the, oh, well, you know, you'll destroy, you know, these different, you know, you'll destroy, there's not, you'll, you know, how you mean doctors aren't going to get paid, you mean this, is blah, 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 it's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. Well, let me tell you how it is working and how it does work. Uh, so Purdue Pharmaceutical is the company that brought us all Oxycontin uh, and a few other opioid-based drugs. Um, and so they've been in and out of the news. <laughs> so they've been in and out of the news over the last few years. Uh, and I'm going to get into a bit of that in a second. But the Oxycontin first came out in 1996. And as we all know, we're in the midst of a major opioid crisis, which, you know... Um, is, is I mean, it, it is ravaging parts of the country, um, including Oklahoma, pretty terribly. Um, and there is a copy of a confidential Justice Department report. And doctors are throwing pain pills like at people. Uh, and we're going to get to that. I mean, that, that's a big part. I mean, I mean, 
I, I know that uh, this is something that uh, Parker and I have uh, discussed and read a lot about. Um, and there's a great episode of The Dollop uh, that discusses the opioid crisis and what Purdue Pharmaceutical it's, did. But it is it is yeah it's pretty um i mean yeah they were just yeah it's just a drug cartel but anyway a confidential uh, just this is a, some reporting for the new york times uh the justice department uh they found that federal prosecutors were investigating the company and they knew about significant abuse of oxycotton within the first few years after 96 which is really important because oxycotton was marketed by Purdue as not addictive. That was the whole reason it existed, was because it was a non-addictive opioid. But from the very inception, they knew that it was addictive, and they were just lying. Uh, company officials had received reports that pills were being crushed and snorted, stolen from pharmacies, and that some doctors were being charged with selling prescriptions according to dozens of previously undisclosed documents. Um, and the drug maker continued in the face of this knowledge to market Oxycontin as less prone to abuse and addiction than other prescription opioids. Um, and, and I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm going to turn it over in a second to you guys to kind of discuss how that can play into like one, um, the fact that like this is the healthcare system we are in. It is terribly inefficient. It has caused an opioid crisis and we could fix all of that with like one, uh, you know, legalizing a lot of things and providing access to both mental health and substance abuse and general healthcare uh, treatment to these people who are masking symptoms with other drugs and becoming addicted. Um, but so um, basically uh, they, uh, the, the Purdue Pharmaceutical had been brought on charges and they pled guilty in 2007 to a felony charge of misbranding. Uh, this was um, three of their top officials. Uh, but they actually, when they pled, rather than the pleading guilty to the felony, they actually pled down to the misdemeanor. Um, and the company had to pay $630 million. Um, and that came in a settlement um, which is important because like it now seems like basically the, the reporting is saying, um, that, uh, th like the justice department was super stoked about this settlement, but, um, there are DA officials who have stepped out and said, we could have stopped this in 2007. If we would have actually levied all these charges and put these people in jail and dismantled this company then, we could have stopped that. And I think that the kind of the backside of this that I think we need to also keep in mind when we talk about the opioid crisis, this is something I've been running into a lot with uh, conservatives that I know and, and people that I know when I'm trying to make arguments about why we should do things, is that over the past two decades, more than 200,000 people have died in the United States. So that's a, about 1,500 bucks they paid per <clears throat> death out of that 350 million. And I'm sure my math's wrong and it's 15,000 or something and else, but I don't care. It's still awful. That's not enough money um, because it didn't destroy the company. It didn't bankrupt these men and make them have to go work low skill jobs. And it didn't, they're still taking private planes and they're still selling Oxycontin. It's actually called MS Continent now, but it's not. Also, 
this is my fun fact before I turn the discussion over to y'all. Um, one of P Purdue Pharma's defense team advisors, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> he, he's actually a user to help with the ether. Um, <laughs> he, he, um, but I want to I say something about that number. 200,000 deaths in the past 20 years, right? If you go on Wikipedia and you type in lists of ongoing armed conflicts, major wars, wars, minor conflicts, and switches and clashes, and major wars are 10,000 or more deaths in a year. So, like, the opioid epidemic is like a major war in terms of the number of people that die regularly. Mm -hmm. Yearly, yeah. from it. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. And I just want to know when they extradite um, El Chapo to the U.S. if he's going to get a plea a settlement since he's also just the exact same as these drug companies, right? He just pushes pills. And I just want to know what kind of settlement that would look like. Or, right, right. or if we could change it and they could start doing the, the Pablo Escobar because that also, I, I guess that would be okay. We could start doing that. I think what's like the scope of this, I think just about everyone in the country knows or at least knows of someone who has gone through opioid addiction and is affected by this issue, which just shows how far-reaching this is. And yet these companies still exist, are still allowed to manufacture, and basically operate with nothing but the few bumps that they face, which is you know, fines in comparison with how much they're making, selling literally what is the equivalent of heroin. Well, that's all. That's, that's also something that they said in, in this that, report. Like, they they can like take these seven. Uh, that's the, the fact they can take these yeah. seven poster children. You know what I mean? That they kind of used in the 1990s and just kind of toss them to the side, especially. Um, of like Flynn specifically, who was the dude who like uh, I think initiated. These laws because of the high dosages he was required to take, because like going against the claims of you know it not having any type of tolerance, it not being addictive. I mean, like, like you, you all that actually, it's just treating these people like they're disposable when it comes to uh, just generating these types of revenue, and it's absolutely mm -hmm. disgusting. One of those, uh, one of those well, people, I mean, and, 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 and I, like, like there are places. Yeah, you go at it. Uh, what, uh, just on Parker's point, uh, one of the um, like people they use, and I know this from some NPR reporting that I was listening to during the week. Uh, one of the people that like came out and was like, "Yeah, it's not addictive. It's not. It's totally fine." Yada yada yada. Uh, they 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 died of an opioid overdose on OxyContin. So <laughs> it's just it's just amazing <laughs> the just total. Uh, you know, I mean. This is capitalism. This is capitalism. I mean, it's not in its highest form because Lenin would yell at me about imperialism. But, like, this... I mean, they, they criminalize selling heroin, but then they just sell Oxycontin, which is just heroin in a pill form, and they get in no trouble, and they make shitloads of money, and then they just, you know, get to sit back and be like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. I, I love the story of, like, oh, you know, it's this non... 
addictive opioid. Like, heroin was produced as a non-addictive um, and marketed by, by Bayer as a non-addictive alternative to morphine. And, like, I don't know. That was in the 1890s that they did that. I don't know when we're going to figure it out that it's an opioid. It's addictive. Like, that's just the end of all of it. And in instances, you're probably going to get addicted to it. Well, that's the thing. Legislation is always so much slower than, you know, how quickly they can new adjacent compounds. Say, oh, it's an entirely different medicine. The legislation to outlaw it takes God knows how long, 10 years. And then in that time, they can sell, you know, half a billion dollars worth of these pills across the country before they have to make a new one that's essentially the same. Right, and, and and a big thing with like doctors as well. I mean, it's it's the same antibiotics, right? Like over prescription of drugs when it's not even necessary. Like you know, where they continually push these types of drugs, like look, antibiotics and steroids when it's not one hundred percent needed, or um, or, or these for like chronic pain. Where I mean, I think even, there was some estimations, and from if I remember from the dollop correctly, of like only upwards of thirty percent from a couple of high level people in neurological like pink clinic to think that there's only like maybe a third of people truly really need this kind of stuff and that other alternative medicines couldn't be used or you know what I mean like they're just being over prescribed in the level of pain that they have and I mean of course it's objective but still like if you were just going to be like oh you have a ton you have a little bit of pain in your foot yeah here's some oxy as opposed to you know what I mean a lower level dose then it definitely is just doctors pushing it as, as much as they can as well because of the, because of the pharmaceutical, getting a pharmaceutical cut of that. That boils down to how bad our healthcare system is if they had the time to effectively diagnose and treat and like really go through the symptoms that each patient was feeling, then they could totally reduce that number to people who actually need uh, opioid painkillers. But instead, they're just like, well, I don't have the time and you don't have the money, so... So I'm just going to prescribe the same painkiller I prescribe everyone who says they're in pain rather than look at symptoms and analyze what's best for you. It's just get them out the door as quick as possible. Yeah, I think that's a really good word. There's also the push factor where it's like, oh, they're, because it's a, a for-profit industry, it's not just, oh, we don't have the time to go through it, blah, blah, blah. The pull factor that keeps yeah, they get getting it, but it's... It's, yeah, it's incentivized to do that because it's like, oh, that's higher turnover. The more, the less time they spend with the patients, so that's more money from insurance co-pays and all from the patients paying. And then it's money from the pharmaceutical industry. And then the pharmaceutical industry has an interest in doing drugs. You know, there was that headline where, like, some fucking Goldman Sachs people did a thing, a study, you know, like, is it the cure probable to keep people needing drugs instead of solving chronic right. issues that could be solved. And I'm not saying that that's always the best option or something. Like sometimes with chronic, chronic issues and solve problem, that can be true. But like, there's pressure to right. do We're that. We're not trying to and demonize the entire profession as if like <clears throat> as if like all doctors, you know what I mean, are out to get all of their functions because well, that's also not the case whatsoever. Yeah, the pro but that's the, the problem. There's no real use in talking about individual doctors or something because it's not. Right. They're operating in a system where there's a set of year make more sense for everybody at every level of the system that incentivizes, you know, uh, Purdue Pharma being literally indistinguishable from 
the, the Sinaloa cartel, except in how they get their product to their, their customers. Yeah, I mean, the doctors get told by the hospital administrators who get told by the insurance providers companies what to do. So it's like the doctors are usually have, you know, their hands tied on what they're allowed to do, uh, you know, short of administrative penalties from the actual hospital, which gets controlled by the people. It's something that would be easily solved by a not-for-profit healthcare system. Yeah. It's literally not a problem in any other country. <laughs> well, speaking of problems um, that could be pretty I mean, easily it's... solved by... Uh, no, yeah, yeah. Let's just go to this. Yeah, yeah that could be pretty easily solved by um, uh, having a not-capitalist structure. Uh, who's telling me about uh, what's going on uh, in Puerto Rico? Uh, well, people know this because Roseanne got canceled. I think that has taken up the last uh, 108 hours of Ram O'Clock media coverage. But. Ambient, by the way. As well. <laughs> We're talking about opiates. We yeah. all have Ambient. Ambient, we have to be more racist than you want to be. We should have came up. Damn, that would be very cool to open to. Continue. I mean, it is the one drug that makes you not woke. See, I did take, I, I have, I have been uh, prescribed Ambien myself and I did take uh, Carl once uh, and, and, and the entire time. <laughs> but, uh, but that was not me, to be clear. <laughs> that was phrased weirdly. I don't... Well, not... Uh, well, I, they were prescribed to me, but fuck you. See, you <laughs> could just imitate Golem. Why do you have to be racist on him? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the better... better um, but while while the world was in a, a or while the country was in a tiff about Roseanne, GBT, or should she not? Some uh, recent reports came out estimating that upwards of forty five hundred to possibly five thousand, and ranging all the way up to the higher estimates of eight thousand people may have died as a result of the uh, effects of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Um, the oh, let's see. How long ago was the hurricane? Nearly. It was almost a year, isn't it? Six months. Six months. Yeah. It was September of. Uh, the estimates said that more than one thousand fifty-two people died, um, and this has been bumped up to as forty hundred. Sure, that the hurricane has had, uh, but much. Uh, much more than just the hurricane itself has really been the deaths caused by the response to the hurricane. Uh, in a similar case to Katrina, just the lack of rescue crews, the lack of infrastructure that has been reestablished, uh, the amount of disease shortages, uh, and then just danger from fallen debris and electrical lines has caused a large amount of these deaths. Uh, deaths that could have been easily prevented by a quick and effective response in Puerto Rico which was specifically shot down by the federal government uh, because of various reasons around funding and because they have 
and or towels, Lassie. What the fuck? <laughs> exactly. They couldn't wash them. What have been Those fine. electrical lines. Don't they're, you know that? They're, they're double absorbent. <laughs> exactly. Got Bounty. Bounty, the sponsor of Hurricane Maria. Uh, but I think what's truly uh, just reprehensible about this is that it really is just being kind of overlooked. Even Katrina got months of coverage and outrage. Well, why do we care about this third this world country that we have no relation to that got hit by a hurricane? <laughs> That's what this is really highlighting, how Puerto Rico is this colony. It's like a colony that we own. And I think I recall during the response to the hurricane, we were specifically help either because whatever it would make us look not humanitarian or like we're not taking care of our own colonial holdings which we are uh, not but we we aren't i <laughs> we're really or the donald trump like, i see you're katrina george w bush but i will be more racist about hurricane response and I, I did that. Maybe that could maybe have been a thing. But that's another thing. No, the Katrina debacle followed Bush to the end of his presidency and like dogged him as a massive black mark. People don't even remember Maria. Like for the most part, you watch the local cable news, all that. They're just like not even talking about it. Brief mention. Um, was it Kissinger? Or no, Stalin, who said that one person dead is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're just able to rattle out, oh yeah. It really could have been Kissinger, though. This place, and... Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's good to go. It really is just being overlooked that we five possibly 8,000 for the most part because of the hurricane itself. Yeah, that's one of the things is that like the original number was like, oh, there were 64 people that died because of Hurricane Maria. And it was like, oh, all of these deaths were like direct deaths. So like you're like walking outside and it's a cartoon and like a tree falls on you or something. Um, and and this is all, this is like you said, indirect deaths. And it's like, no one, no one seems to care. Like it's what? genuinely, no one is reporting on it. It's not on the front page of the New York Times. It's not on. It's not the. It's not on any cable news. Like I saw something that was like something like it didn't get mentioned this week on cable news. It's fucking like racist ambient lady gets her show canceled. Is that something people are debating? Yeah, because they they love this. They can have the uh, attention and culture war going on while. Thousands of people who are under the U.S. government are dying with almost no attention given to them. But the take that I heard was like people claiming that, oh, well, it was only 6,400 or only 64 people. Uh, so, you know, all these other numbers, it's that bad because it's not directly from the game. It's not a worse segment <laughs> of government of all the people are being needed. They're trying to claim that, like, well, the official number, the only 64 people directly died from the hurricane. The rest died from being left to fend for themselves in an apocalyptic situation. That's so, okay. you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> like the uh, government says, no, 
Pokemon, who gives a shit if they die? That's okay. Yeah. Only Especially if people we... die naturally from a natural disaster. The rest were just... People die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, all these people were like... Like, Joseph Stalin strangled every single one of those Ukrainians during the thing. Like, that's a poor government. You know, this is... One of the craziest things for me is I saw I saw some stuff about ten people from Hurricane Maria in Cuba, and they've been like it's been like a big public debate about how ten people died instead of dying. Yeah, because Cuba is the model for hurricane entire like in this entire hemisphere because well a because they have massive of public money going towards making hurricane response infrastructure. But also, yeah, like you said, they go in and look at these. They're like, 10 people died during this. How can we stop that, Nick? Instead, like, of us being like, <laughs> instead of us being like, hey, yeah, like, probably a thousand died in the first month. And uh, we don't really know. They're not the, that's part of the, part, that's not part of the real country. That's It's basically yeah. a lot of brown people that we don't care about. So well, some Wall Street bankers will probably make some money off this. They're like, that's cool. Well, that's about time. Who really cares? Kind of a terrifying, you know, glimpse of a future to come. In I'm sure that we've referenced how the coming climate apocalypse is going to go, but they will just start prioritizing resources. This is the case of that. We saw produce, which was the same hurricane season. I don't hear anything about Houston and how those people are still living in flooded homes and trying to of course, the part of the country that we do take care of still. And that it really, we spent federal minister money on Houston and we sent in rebuilding there. And that's kind of how this is going to go unless we really, it's either so barbarous about yeah. resources, mm-hmm. it's going to be, we have to start, they're going to start prioritizing which places get taken care of and which places are left to fend for themselves as the floodwaters start to rise around. Well, speaking of the choice yeah, between... I mean, it's, it's a literal example of what you get, but like, it's social... They did it well, and yeah. then multiple thousand deaths. And so it's like, yeah, it's quite literally socialism or barbarism in this instance. Well, speaking um, of socialism yeah. or barbarism, uh, I think that that's going to go ahead and take us to Oklahoma news. And I think Mr. Nelson has a little bit about some possibly good news for the state of Oklahoma. Oh, well, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, it's... Like like Carl, much more a blue tide than it is a tsunami coming through. But um, I, this is going to be more of a, for Oklahoma news a little bit of a, I'm guy for this week, um, because uh, there has been quite quite a bit going on in Oklahoma. Uh, man, country actually, nearly forty five thousand, a little bit over forty five thousand people have registered uh, to vote in Oklahoma since January. Uh, fortunately, uh, the the bulk of new voters are Republican, but you know, we'll, we'll we'll let that slide. Um, it's uh, not not. But it's about 
2014 with about 40 percent of the registered voters casting ballots. But hopefully um, we can uh, change that with the upcoming elections, given the upcoming midterm, the very least June 26th. Don't forget get your ass out to vote, get your ass out to vote in them, um, as well as on the state questions. But um, there are uh, running for state and federal offices this year in Oklahoma, um, while many legislative races were uncontested in 2014. So um, we'll get a little bit more of the nitty gritty of that. Second, but uh, we'll, I guess we're to focus on um, w- uh, women's candidacy and role in playing. Uh, in um, only 35 women filed for one of the uh, 125 Oklahoma legislative seats. Um, women make up only 33% of this year's field, uh, uh, an increase from the 15 to 22% of recent. Currently, the legislature only has 21 female lawmakers roughly of the 149 member body um yet another another thing we're nearly dead last in 49th women in the legislature second only to fucking wyoming um Woo! thanks easy we appreciate the fucking murk um <laughs> so this is a similar trend across the country uh with senate and gubernatorial races uh 474 women are running as opposed to 298 and this year's 50 Republicans running 23% are women, while 76 of the 121 Democrats, or 44%, are also women. So um, I think there are a couple of really important motivations behind for this sort of for this um, political movement. Um, um, things like the Me Too, the Me Too movement, um, talking about sexual that uh, directly impacts women is uh, the very uh, existence of our current president seems to be generating a political climate motivating these candidates, um, as well as the teacher walkout, which we've covered extensively on this show. Uh, according to a nearly 79,000 member Facebook group that was organized to support the walkout, 95 current or former public school educators and so um, I, I think that that's going to be a major running point at the very least because of like the nation or the, the, the state's inability to uh, make these their fucking jobs. And um, while we see these, uh, like, uh, sort of hopeful, like, inspiring um, in- inspiring movements start to begin, they, they do face a number of challenges, uh, especially in the Oklahoma legislature. One being, obviously, it's Oklahoma sexism. Um, while knocking on doors, uh, well, there's a, a, a couple of candidates knocking on doors. They've had a couple tell, uh, tell them that they should be at home with their children that they were blown away that this type of thing still occurs in the 21st century and that this type of question, like, men would never be asked, as well as in intimidation. Um, uh, Senator Stephanie Bice, um, who's a Republican, uh, is one of seven women in the 48-member Senate. Um, she said that running for office can likely be intimidating when female candidates know that they will likely be outnumbered by a middle ballot, and if elected in the legislature, um, they she, she advocates for much more women in the legislature, a little collaborative, and that there isn't, uh, there isn't as much a focus on who gets credit credit, they just want to draft good policy, which I definitely The Oklahoma legislature is, like, so fucking free. So, like, fucking I by himself killed criminal justice reform that had, like, bipartisan support and support from the governor for multiple for like he was a state senator, uh, Biggs, just like killed it because somebody was like, "I'm not gonna vote for your shitty law, dude." And they're like, "Well, now we're not going to pass this thing that has like 70 percent support in the houses of the legislature because it's just so petty shit." 
And this idea, like, if women could be less petty than the shit men up with the legislature, that would be really cool. Well, really good a, stuff. It's not that, but it seems like the this the of like uh, just within that the legislature at the, at, at the Oklahoma Capitol is like one of state action. You know what I mean? One of like, hey, we constantly are not doing something that could end up bad. Therefore, we better credit. It's like any type of proposition is coming down on, I mean, the dipshit air of like, oh, no, more taxes. You know what I mean? Like um, something that could go terribly wrong is horribly mismanaged or somehow like is actively mismanaged by the, the dipshit majority. And then somehow I'll get around it against this quote, quote big guns. Even more. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And that a lot of these like um, and, and it actually did, like especially during the two the main um, politically motivating big gesture as like, a lot of people who had never even visited the Capitol before, who made their way down to protest on behalf of the teachers, kind of saw firsthand this just passive garbage climate that is the Oklahoma legislature. Like, holy fucking shit, I could, I have good things to, I have great ideas and experience tribute, like, some jackass out the fucking door so that we can, mm -hmm. you know, get some actual political political move instead of this continual stall that's been the entirety of our lifetime. Well, the problem is that stall is that it's so easy to survive for a long time by doing because you can spend decades just shooting down any that actually tried something innovative or to change anything and say, oh, look, they tried to change something and that's why it's bad. It incorporated anything so I can point to blame it even though I've never proposed any forward moving legislation and you can get by for a while until you get to a point like we have now where people are marching on because our schools are falling apart and now we have enough people who are saying we can't do nothing anymore we need to do something and I think it's encouraging to see people riding that way hopefully we'll get some more people who are actually concerned with getting things done rather than keeping their comfy seat in the legislature. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's, I, I think, too, one of the biggest problems, there's a, the term limit system that limits you to 16 years total, makes it really easy to do that because your term limited so if you're, if you're going to get voted out, you do that, you know, just write your phone calls the full way, just like, well, I can't do anything. You know, it's a very well incentivized system for not doing anything of value. You are there. I think it's a lot more young people in the state registered to vote, which, of course, always use in a more restriction. Uh, and definitely will do around that sexism that we talked about because, of course, for the most part, young people are unconcerned about a woman's in the legislature. She funding, yeah, right, and that's something that Sarah Jane Rose, for instance, who's the executive director of Sally's List, she tried to push this narrative her campaign that she doesn't believe that the like that Republican ideals are synonymous with um like a, a like a social issues for women, right? Like paid family leave, abortion rights, access to health care, those type things. But I mean. Side of the aisle as well from a couple of sitting Republican, uh, sitting Republican 
currently that are women um, that say that the, the challenge is just to encourage women, regardless of political affiliation, to run because both Republican and Democratic women tend to agree on many issues, just like you said, increasing public education fund, finding ways incarcerating this. You know, the, the set aside these sort of partisan bullshit issues, and I, I like the like, even necessarily one of sentiment that we feel here on the show, but one that is reflected in the way in which they're voting in the actual. The fucking jackasses get out. Let's, let's get more women in the house. Well, I I, I completely agree. Let's we should. More, let's get more. Yeah, I think I think we the, the best thing we can do is to get more women into the house and. Uh, one of the things that uh, Carl and I and the rest of us talk about pretty often is that our greatest benefit um, being, you know, true leftists and having a true leftist perspective is that we're as inclusive as we possibly can be. And on top of that, uh, the the more inclusive we are, I think we all share this belief that the more inclusive a government is, the better it reflects the people that it is governing. And that in that same sense, the more we can better reflect our uh, actual society, uh, the more able our government is to respond to those things. Uh, but thinking of things that haven't been responded to in almost 100 years, uh, Mr. Roberts, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, our, uh, the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre? Yeah, so the Tulsa Rape Massacre happened uh, on a period from May 31st of 1921, uh, really through June 2nd, uh, <laughs> um, kind of finished up, coming second, uh, and it was really kind of indicative of, of, of the state of Oklahoma at the time, right? You had the first law passed was Jim Crow. And you had a very segregated Tulsa, of course, after the oil boom in the early 1910s that made Tulsa into a city. And in that in that context, and after World War One, after a bunch of black men had served in the military and come home with weapons and military training, uh, there was a moment where a black man maybe tripped getting into an elevator. Uh, maybe something wrong to the white woman operating the elevator. We don't know what happened. Entirely and, possible that the woman just screamed right. out of fear that there was a black man in the building that, for the most part, whites only were allowed. <laughs> um, just, you know, she herself said on May 30th, the day the incident happened, she was like, I don't want to press charges. Nothing really happened. Um, it's, not, it's not a bad deal. Um, which the police also did, right? The police treated it, they're like, this is not a man, we don't need to do a manhunt, it's not an assault, you know, it's two teenagers, it, it, it's not a big deal, and it's a guy who, like, got into an elevator and left immediately. Probably not something that terrible. Um, but then the Oklahoma newspapers at the time, the Tulsa Tribune, especially, came out and were like, oh, we heard about this story, and there's a black man being kept at the Tulsa County House. And they, a bunch of editorials, much like some newspapers uh, in Oklahoma, I won't name who, talk about how there's going to be mention of this guy. Do they also receive poop in a bag? 
<laughs> God <laughs> damn it. Oh, so many no, no, no. To the Dolce Tribune. You can't send it back to the Dolce Tribune, guys. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Mail. Find a historical address to that. Uh, it, it's a bunch of shit like that. There, there was a guy who had been lynched not terribly early before, and there was a history of lynchings in Tulsa. Interestingly, also lynchings directed at left-wing people. Um, there were some guys from the IWW that got lynched, and some that else got tarred and feathered by some people. Instrumental to the... Um, um, but so this, you know, they, they publish all this sensationalist shit about how they should... Maybe there's got to be a lynching... And white mobs of people eventually descend on the courthouse demanding to get Roland, this young black man who has supposedly had scandalized this white woman by getting in the elevator. Um, and the sheriff, to, you know, much to the... Uh, uh, something to praise the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office for, which is not a sentence I've ever thought I would say. They were like, no, y'all ain't gonna lynch this guy, and we're going to keep him safe here, and if you all want to lynch him, we're going to fight you off. And a mob of angry white people showed up, some black men, some young black men, some veterans showed up, and were like, hey, we're veterans, we have weapons, we will gladly support you, Mr. Sheriff, in keeping these people out of the building. And eventually, some white people tried to take guns of the black men, a shot, and then overnight... Uh, we have probably the worst race massacre in the history of the U.S. You know, it's the first time ever that bombed uh, Buck Hope Franklin, or not Buck Hope, um, B.C. Franklin, the father of John Hope Franklin, um, in, wrote a, a description of it where he wanted thing at his law office in Greenwood and watching all these buildings catch on fire from above and wondering why that was happening while over more than a dozen planes were flying around the city, and then he walked outside, and he felt the rain of balls of team lit on fire falling on him. And like $31 million worth of property in today's money was destroyed. And, and nothing, 97 years later, $31 million of property was destroyed. Maybe 300 people were killed, and almost overwhelmingly black people were killed. And now all that's happened is there's a there's a only, only in the last twenty or so years has it even been recognized as an event actually occurred. I mean, there was the they had the big commission to unearth all of the documented history of the race right because it had been completely forgotten. Like in you know mid twentieth century, also it was just something you never talked about. And then by the time it got to the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was completely forgotten until a commission to unearth the history of this was started to light onto one of the worst atrocities to ever occur. And, and still, to this day, there was an attempt in the 1920s, in 1922, to say, hey, uh, y'all motherfuckers owe some goddamn money. You burned down our whole neighborhood. You all owe us for this. That was the action of, of white people and this destroy one of the wealthiest black parts of America and this one was basically like haha no we're extremely racist and it wasn't until 2001 that they started the Tulsa Race Riot Commission to deal with it and 
still to this day there's been nothing but building this park there's been the establishment of a scholarship program for people whose ancestors first of and that's it that's all that has happened um this is a situation we can very easily it, it would not be hard at all to figure out who, whose parents, whose grandparents, who is still living, I think it's only one person that's still alive that lived through the race riot, that lost things. It would not be hard to figure out how much they lost in today's world. And it would not take a lot of effort to say the state of Oklahoma and the city of Tulsa and, and the rich white neighborhoods are, in Tulsa are going to pay them what they're owed. Because they're owed that money. They were That was destroyed by white people. And... It's just, it's one of those things, I mean, we grew up in a generation where it was early enough that people talked about it. I mean, did you hear about it in school, uh, Mona Casino, Lassie? Was that a thing yeah. you all talked about? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a thing we talked about we in prior public schools. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, of course, uh, we definitely talked about it in Washington. Yeah, now. Uh, I didn't even know it was a thing until I met uh, y'all. Yeah, but I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know about it. Like, like the fact that you didn't know about it until you met people, and in the fact that you only heard about it in high school, like, for a little bit, Parker, is, is bad enough. And the well, only there are still thing, lots of Oklahomans that I know that don't know anything about it. Um, I mean, a lot of people who are Prince age are just, like, only now even beginning to understand that it was a thing. Yeah, I, I there's some there's some studio like, uh, talking about some guy... Uh, a black photographer that grew up in Greenwood and like take photos of Greenwood, and the guy who does Studio Tulsa, Studio Tulsa, I can't even remember his name. <laughs> you know, he's a native Tulsa. He's lived Tulsa. He's lived here for a long time. He didn't know about it. thirty years of his life or something. And it's just, I mean, of course we know at Booker T. Washington because Booker T. Washington High School was a, a field hospital for black people during during the race massacre. But the fact that that many people haven't heard about it, the fact that today people don't know about it is. is one of the biggest shots on the state of Oklahoma that, that we don't talk about this. I mean, yeah, this the is that it should be taught at the national level. Yeah, like it, it's that significant of an event, and it's only now getting recognized. And I think that now more than ever, with I would say we've got a growing history of people who want to incite more racial tension in this country. Do we need to talk about these previous issues because? Of course, the riot didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of years of resentment building up between these communities that have been separated and had, you know, propaganda against each other. And I think that recognizing this is important when we've got a president is inciting no, further racial tension. And that's powder kegs like that. You get these flashpoints where years of animus and buildup eventually erupts into some and tragic um, and in probably 99% of those situations the minority group is the one who takes the brunt of the damage yeah which is also why it's important we've said Tulsa race massacre the whole time and that's really important because when you say race riot it makes yes, it sound not. like it's the black did something and it's 100% was to the extent that black people were violent in this instance, it was literal self-defense against an army of people that might have set up a machine gun to shoot indiscriminately into the neighborhood that were using 
over a dozen planes to firebomb the neighborhood and that we're trying to protect somebody from a lynching. Worth pointing out that the like, wing Second Amendment guys who talk about protecting their communities from government tyranny, that's what uh, these black communities were doing, protecting their Actively communities doing, yeah. from the tyranny. Yeah, multiple like, accounts from the time that it happened from the race, uh, the time of the race occurred, that the sheriff's office, uh, that not the sheriff's office, but the police department was involved in the firebombing, that they were on planes using them as reconnaissance. The National Guard, when it showed up, did from looting the armory and using those weapons to attack the neighborhood, but also rounded up black people from Greenwood and put them in internment camps. They did not round up the white people getting burned down. The fire department, in that letter B.C. Franklin wrote, where he, where we finally found out for sure that, like, oh, there's an eyewitness that we know was there who wrote, you know, like, a day or two after it happened, right, when we finally found out for sure that those planes were firebombing the neighborhood. He also talks about how the fire department simply did not go into Greenwood. It stayed out of the neighborhood and let the, neighbor, it let the neighborhood burn to the ground. And so when you do talk about any U.S. government has essentially... Almost always black people in the state of Oklahoma. Black people and, and native people. Um, this is just another one of those examples. Like, if you want to talk about having guns, this is what we need guns to stop from happening. The government bombing black people. And this is, this is I mean, the, the commission is something good about unearthing a large amount of the history or sort of around in the, this event. But because it has been hidden and records destroyed, we really don't know the full extent to the race riot happened. We don't know. I mean, like you said, that allegedly part of fire bombing. But again, like some of these things, we can't be sure how uh, impactful, like how just how much was really done because some of these records to protect people's. Yeah, one of the best examples is. Um the, the midday paper from the Tulsa Tribune where they supposedly ran the the front page article titled To Lynch a Negro. And like we know that because apparently a bunch of people say it's there, but if you go into the Tulsa State County Library, the microfilm is missing. If you went into the records kept at the Tulsa World from this newspaper, that day's copy does not exist. So there's been system erasure of the people who deserve blame and sh who should pay the fucking $31 million that is owed to the black community of North Tulsa. And we got, I mean, we got to, you're right, the Tulsa Commission has done a wonderful job, but until we come to terms with it, until we try and do something about it, until we talk about it. I mean, we the point where no one from Tulsa this should not surprise anyone from Tulsa. There should be something they grow up knowing. We're, we're no one from Oklahoma. Yeah, no one from Oklahoma. No one really no one from the entire country. But yeah, yeah this is one of the worst racial atrocities of the entire country's history just because of how forceful, how violent, and then, of course, how forgotten it ended up being. Yeah. Well... And it's also... Um, you know, one of the things I just want to suggest last thing is the formal reparations uh, for this. In like the next five to ten years, people in Tulsa are going to start talking, tearing down the IDL on the south and the east side to make room. I've been talking about that for a long. Yeah, time. to connect this city to the rest of the park. One of the things 
the first part of the IDA should get torn down before any other part has to be that north side because there was some rebuilding of Greenwood after 1921, but the final death knell for that that part of town being the central part of the black community in Tulsa was the construction of the IDL. So when people start talking about that, this is a way we can bring it up and say, hey, let's try and create some justice for this community. Let's rip out the north part of the IDL. Yeah, interstate highways are literal physical embodiments of black communities. Yeah, tearing them down does a lot to re-knit the fabric of, like, weaving the North Tulsa black community, the prosperous town area. And that would certainly be a huge step in the right. And I think that all the interstate highways should be taken out and replaced <laughs> with trains. But, <laughs> but uh, in this at the very least, starting to, you know, re-knit Tulsa's prosperous downtown, which is experiencing a lot of growth these days to the black that are still set back from the effects of it would be a step in the right direction for sure yeah well let's talking about uh taking steps in the right direction um i think that uh the oklahoma editorial board might have uh some suggestions for us this week uh carl i'll let you take that <laughs> away yeah, so this is a this was published on Tuesday, May 29th, uh, by the Oklahoma Editorial Board, and it's titled "College Study Should Concern Oklahoma Policymakers." The first time the Oklahoma Editorial Board has ever cared about a study coming out of a college ever. Um, and so they start. For those starting at the lower economic ladder, education is crucial crucial to increasing one's earnings. So it should concern policymakers that a report shows Oklahoma ranks at the bottom of the 50 states in the share of Also, it's not like we can't incentivize how people go to school. It's almost, you know, it's, it, there, there's absolutely nothing. I, I know my, my, my lag and sound is terrible, so I, I'll say... The, the, this is my major comment on this. Is it's just amazing that you can't incentivize people going to school by giving scholarships. It's just amazing. Wait, what's what's a scholarship? Yeah, what's free college? Uh, it's, it's like free money to you for being lazy. That's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Let's keep going. Because really at this moment, they're doing okay. That study by the Pell Institute for the Study of Opportunity in Higher Education finds only a 21% college participation rate for Oklahomans from low-income families. That was tied for second lowest getting out on the rate was 10%. The estimated college participation rate for low-income students was 34.2% in 2016. Why is Oklahoma so much lower than the national average? Several explanations come to mind, but few explain the large gap. I absolutely love whatever they're so about still, to tell me. Whatever they're about to tell they're, me they're is going to be good. That can't be good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, here, here's the first good one. positive explanation offered by Pell is that in energy-producing states like Oklahoma, quote, higher-paying jobs might be available without college <laughs> No doubt. There are students who forgo college, but it's totally a gap. Let's recognize that that's a, a total bullshit thing in Oklahoma. Um, they try and slide off. Qualify with 
but maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> oil companies, but maybe not. I know. <laughs> yeah, we're all plants from Chesapeake. Well, this is a, a, an effort to undermine the left in Oklahoma. <laughs> I've been yeah, saying I'm I'm just subversive. I've been I've been a subversive working. agent for years. Yeah, see, I, the... I changed my profile picture to I support big oil and Oklahoma. <laughs> great, it's a great little thing. I've actually held hams balls multiple times. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> they're heavy and fruitful. Um, Fruit. I don't keep reading know. after just that. Keep going. <laughs> Some will blame Oklahoma though. For pupil spending in K K through twelve schools, yeah, you, you think who, who would do that? Huh? Who only like literally everybody at the Capitol for three months? <laughs> well, not anyone maybe who worked at the Capitol, just people who were there uh, at the Capitol. Um, but Idaho, Arizona, and Utah all spend even less per pupil than Oklahoma, and the college participation rate was twenty six percent in Idaho and twenty seven percent in both Utah and Arizona. When other states spend less per pupil on K through twelve and you'll see a higher share of poor, youth, uh, of poor youth go to college. That's wrong. Um, that suggests K-12 spending isn't the primary cause of low college attendance. So we're don't talk about it anymore. Well, we don't need to we're done. We're done. We don't need to oh, talk yeah. about please. it ever again. Any they, they citations, can... please. Can I see? Uh... Yeah, I mean, that's not the main reason. There's probably other reasons, like how expensive uh, college or No need to invest in the schools. Or, you know, the minimum wage of how much you can earn or, you know, your ability to get financing for schools. Like, there's those things aren't important. No. No, they're not. Um, but they're going to try, they're gonna try and, and make it, you know, more, more scientific here. Yeah, I'm still trying to set out what their main point is. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> well, the report found the states with the highest college participation rates among poor students, quote, tended to be located in the northeast. Oklahoma still stood apart from most states in the immediate region. Northeastern. <laughs> what might be a thing about northeastern states that they have in common in terms of government policy? Is it spending, is it spending more money on public goods? Might that be why? I don't know. We need some insight here. What, what do they do in the choose? Well, see, the reason is that up here, um, you know, living on the mean street of Southie like I do, there's only one way out, and that's uh, full rights scholarship for university. Uh, Hell. The, what, what you do see is um, about about 80% uh, of people here in Boston, uh, they are Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting, <sighs> secret geniuses working construction, <laughs> working the roofing with their friends Mikey and Tommy. The thing is, and Vinny and Tony, we've we've really understood the untapped potential of uh, all of the geniuses in South Boston, uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, amongst others, and all of those people go to MIT now. Uh, they all go to Harvard too. They go to both of them at the same time um, See, through I hard was, work. But, but the real problem is that South Tulsa doesn't have any geniuses. <laughs> Not a single smart person lives in South Tulsa. Uh, damn it. We, we need, can't import the model. We need a federal program to uh, fund thousands of Robin Williams to understand the genius potential of the people in South Tulsa. All the fucking so I was, in Tulsa. <laughs> I, I was just hoping it, their social programs were, were 
people voting class during one period of time and then demanding a degree. Uh, no, what happens, is, what happens is you go into a bar and you say, I think you're smart reading for cult, uh, but uh, you know, I'll tell you, you're $200,000 on your education here at Harvard that I got the uh, the Boston Library and the Wahlburgers down the street. The Wahlburgers. God fucking damn Well, we'd have to invest money in our libraries, and the Oklahoma editorial board's policy is not to do that. So, uh, but, but let's keep going. Let's keep going here. Um, in neighboring Arkansas, 27% of poor students pursue college. That state is demographically similar to Oklahoma. The college-going rate of the poor was much higher in Kansas and Missouri, while Texas was also higher at 26%. Once again, all states that spend more money on schools than us, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, all states. Next, what of college affordability? The Pell Report finds just seven states have lower average four-year public college costs, including tuition fees and removal. And Oklahoma ranked eighth lowest in the share of college graduates with debt. The report also found the average cost of attending a two-year public institution in Oklahoma is more expensive than in 19 other states. All they're doing is throwing a bunch of, like, decontextualized stats at you and being like, well, there's no way of knowing. Can you navigate through this pool of statistics without any citations? Yeah. It's also one of those things where it's like, oh, what if college affordability? It's not a concern in most other industrialized nations, but it's free. You, you, you get paid. Maybe that would help poor people. I don't know. It's not like we all personally know someone that couldn't finish college because they couldn't afford it. It's not like we know multiple people that couldn't finish college because they couldn't afford it. I did. They, did, they, they went to college, but not. I, I did. Nope, you should have learned to code more. Parker, what's <laughs> Per our pre-show chat last week, you did not learn how to code. You couldn't solve my computer problem before the show started. You were trash. Okay, you wasted all that you money. Because you have a trash throw the trash, trash in the garbage can so we can get back to this article. <laughs> Another explanation for Oklahoma's low ranking is one that may be the most difficult to address. Low expectations. On most measures of it's always our dreams, Carl. Why are Oklahoma's dreams always so shitty? The problem is the Oklahoma Education Board has not read The Secret. Kindergarten, <laughs> 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 or, or we solve all these problems. But I love how they just blame. Like, this is this is really good. I, I want to finish this paragraph before I say this because this is like the the, the smartest, genius brain thing anyone has ever said. Um, for years, Oklahoma's ranking on most measures of K-12 student learning has been among the lowest in the country, yet the response from many officials has been, other than funding, everything is fine. <laughs> other than you don't have money to pay for anything, it's probably cool. Yeah, but the last two paragraphs of this article are by far the, uh, the, the, the most aggressively editorial board. Yeah, but the thing, the thing here is that they just say low expectations are really the problem, not the fact that we can't afford, like, to have buildings that aren't collapsing on people. The um, problem is these students won't pull up their pants and wear a tie. That's the real... Hey, hey, if your expectations are for education but not for buildings, maybe we see some fucking results, okay? I would say our expectations are pretty high if we're paying this little 
for per student and still expect them to graduate <laughs> go to college. That's some pretty high expectations. Maybe they'll go home and let's finish it out because Adam's right. Adam's right about this. Resistance to raising standards and expectations, regardless of state funding or a child's socioeconomic status, has contributed greatly to Oklahoma's low national ranking on education and undoubtedly played a role in Oklahoma having few poor, fewer poor students who pursue college, with which they may ignore two of the most important factors for finding out how people's, people end up educationally, and then why do they end up shittily? Just, just put those aside. Put the most important things aside and then ask that question. So, so I really... I want to see the Oklahoma editorial board members go into one of the, what is it, 19 counties, educational counties of Oklahoma that are on four-day school weeks because they literally can't fund to keep the schools running for five days a week with AC and whatnot. I want them to, I want them to go in there. And I want them to like take one of the uh, like like you know textbooks that are unbound and whatever, and like look at the kids. And, like, why the fuck aren't you? But, and it's one of those schools where like 90% of them are on free and reduced lunch or something, and they're like, raise your fucking expectations, kid. Just in a sauna and to be memorizing every page what do you, of the what do you mean? we held together anymore. And, 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 they're just like, what do you mean you can't learn well or you're missing one of the five days you used to get food for free from the government and you're going hungry all weekend? Raise your fucking expectations from your teacher who makes 20k. It is like Goodwill Hunting, except they all go into a uh, classroom with test scores and look at the uh, fourth graders and say, it is your... <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the Oklahoma name children for bad schools. Um, I like it. Yeah, uh, let's finish it out. We've long stressed college isn't for everyone, and that the state also needs... Uh, well, you know, the Oklahoma editorial board thinks that when you go to college, you get a book called Socialism and another one called Justice Warrior when you sign Full up. Full circle. What's the shit called for OU's summer program uh, right before you go to college? Did you do that shit? Crimson. Camp Crimson. Camp Crimson. Camp Crimson. where you get your Justice Warrior textbooks. You get the Communist Manifesto on the April thesis, and they say, Kill the bourgeoisie! <laughs> Can we start an alternative, Cram Crimson, that actually does that? No. Uh, Camp Real Crimson. Uh, that's not good. Um, yeah, okay. So, so they say that, and then the kicker. But this doesn't mean Oklahoma officials shouldn't try to do better. And that complacency is an extortion report. This brought to you by the people who said, stop funding our schools. They don't need the funding. They're good enough as they are right now. <laughs> Jeez. As always, the uh, Oklahoma editorial board is uh, right on, on point. But uh, to get to some better news, you want to tell us about socialist events for the week, Carl? Yes. Um... Uh, on Friday, June 8th, the new Century Network of Tulsa is happening at the David Elmas Correctional Center from 12 to 12.20. And just like we said last week, like they're literally trafficking children. Like, go protest them. Um, that's pretty important. Uh, GCDSA, along with some others, including the Tulsa 
hosting a brake light clinic Saturday, June 9th in Tahlequah. So if you want to volunteer and help out, or if you're in, you know, the partly green country, part of green country, you know, go need some help, go there. Additionally, second annual AIMIT cookout is happening on the same day at the Lake Latonka Recreational Area. Uh, I'll have links to all of them on the Facebook page. And anyway, Patrick Benz is looking for a doctor in their homelessness outreach event on July 1st. They've already got some registered nurses. But those nurses need an actual doctor to be able to do certain kinds of medical procedures because the doctor has to fight. So if you're a doctor um, or if you know a doctor who might be interested in helping out there, uh, reach out to us, reach out to Red Dirt Defense and let us know. And, you know, go do the coolest things ever since we've decided that poor people shouldn't have health care. They're providing us with a way to, to get that out. So that's all we've got this week. But go do any of those things. And as always, you can check us out on Twitter at Red Star Over OK. Our subreddits are Red Star Over Oklahoma. And uh, we'll probably be putting some stuff up from this week, including uh, maybe an Imger or that Esquire article with the uh, McNaughton paintings on there. Uh, as always, you can listen at SoundCloud and iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, concerns, you can go to redstaroverok at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, but as always, tell your friends and rate and review on iTunes, guys. Thanks for listening for this week. Have a good one.